this edition of Create the Village. When Ahmad was killed, something shifted for me and it just was kind of a, you know what, no, we are going to make a stand and we are going to speak to this and we are going to call out that equity is a critical part of our work and it will be moving forward. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Well, hello, hello, hello to everyone. This is, for me, a special, very special treat. We will be chatting this morning with Lauren Coons. Lauren is the president and CEO of the Metropolitan Atlanta YMCA. She leads the organization's efforts to ensure that all people, and particularly children, experience an equal opportunity to fully reach their potential. With a career spent in education and health nonprofit development, Lauren is committed to the purpose of making the Y a thought leader and best-in-class provider of education, wellness, and youth development programs, all designed to strengthen Atlanta's communities. She is, coincidentally, the first woman president and CEO in the YMCA of Metro Atlanta's 160-year-plus history, a truly, truly a trailblazer. Functionally, just so you have a sense of the scale of her, the operation that she runs, she's responsible for the overall success of Atlanta Association's 17 membership and program branches, 13 early learning centers, 40-plus after-school sites, three youth and teen development centers, two summer resident camps, the YMCA Leadership and Learning Center, and the teams of employees and volunteers who bring these places and programs to life. That's what she does during the day, suggests that she doesn't have any time left after she goes home. (laughs) Um, But Lauren joined the Y in 2012 and has had a pretty meteoric rise. She has been running the place for quite a while, and I told her predecessor, I wish I had my own Lauren, because she's really doing all the work, and he's out front getting a lot of the credit. But um, when she joined in 2012, she was the chief development officer and was promoted to EVP and chief development officer in 2016, five years ago. As EVP, She was responsible for oversight of all fundraising efforts, management of half of the organization's membership and youth development branches, and the WISE early learning programs, team leadership programs, and all marketing and communication functions. Previously, or prior to her tenure at the Y, Lauren served in development leadership roles at Cox Curry & Associates, Emory University School of Medicine, Mount Vernon Presbyterian Church, and a number of other organizations, all designed to create great outcomes for people. She's always been people-centered. As a volunteer and board member, Lauren specializes in, and this is with another organization, specializes in strategic planning, board training, and advancement. Lauren serves on the Youth Advisory Council for the Atlanta Police Foundation 
and a number of organizations. I could tell you that I could read off about 10 different things that she's involved in, but I can say she's highly sought after. And in 2020, Lauren was named one of Atlanta Magazine's Women Making a Mark. And in 2016, she received the YMCA's highest honor, which is called the Sully Award, named for Thomas Sullivan, who founded the YMCA's in the U.S. In 2013, Lauren was named among Atlanta Business Chronicles 40 Under 40. She speaks frequently on panels and podcasts on nonprofit management and leadership issues. She's a Georgia native. She grew up on St. Simon's Island, which is not really a hard life. I would take that one. <laughs> she received a BBA from the University of Georgia and an MBA from Georgia State University. She's married to Brad Coons, and they have two lovely children, Kate and Sam. So, Lauren, did I do justice? What else would you say to a listening audience that would be important as we go into these questions? I would say, Egbert, that you made me sound really, really good. Um, I think we'll have a lot of fun diving into, especially the last year during the pandemic. Um, the one thing that I would share is that uh, I have been at the Y for nine years, and you shared how my role when I came in and my promotion in 2016, but um, I moved into the CEO role in July 2019, so just about seven uh, or eight months before the pandemic started. So it's been an interesting first year and a half, and there's a lot to unpack and a lot that we can talk about. Great. And I would consider that, by the way, to be divine intervention. The Lord said, given what's coming next year, I need to prepare the why by giving them the perfect leader to help them navigate this upcoming thing. So um, as you have alluded to, we all had a challenging year last year. So if you would, why don't you just talk to us about how the why, both locally and nationally, by the way, have pivoted during the pandemic. And as you do that, just remind us of or share with us how you have reimagined the core business of delivery, your delivery systems, because obviously, I assume those have had to change. And then what do these changes mean for the future? Well, I will share with you, I was looking at a slide that we created um, last spring when we were talking with various partners and funders about kind of how things were unfolding in real time. And it's a slide that shows the month of March by day uh, of 2020. And March 10th, which was a Tuesday, was the first day that we stood up our COVID crisis cross-functional team. And that was the day that we said, all right, this is happening, right? We all began to understand that things were moving very quickly. And we began to ask ourselves two questions. One, if we have to close our doors, which at the time we didn't know if we would, if we have to close our doors, how will we create value for our members and for those who are a part of the why? Because, you know, we are a nonprofit, but 65% of our annual budget is through membership and program fees through earned revenue. So that model is extremely important to our financial success and our ability to deliver on the missional impact that we want to see. So we really had to ask ourselves, okay, so how are we going to address creating that value if our doors close? So that conversation began. At the exact same time, we're having 
to answer a second question, which is how will the Y step in and step up into this space and what can we uniquely provide that the community needs during a pandemic? And so um, that was on a Tuesday and we began meeting every single day at four o'clock. And that group met every day from March 10th through the end of June, including on the weekends at four o'clock. We would meet for an hour because things were happening so quickly and the disruption uh, to our, our, our models was, was so real. Um, so on Friday, uh, March 13th, uh, the governor's executive order comes out and we close all of our early learning centers and all of our after-school sites in accordance with that executive order. By the following Tuesday, we have had to close all of our Ys that you think of as wellness or membership branches. So in the course of one week, we went from business as usual to every single thing that we did being completely shut down. And so that really creates, obviously, um, you know, a very real need to pivot, you know, the most under overused word of the year, but pivot, adapt, evolve, be agile. You know, I would say that before everything changed, uh, we were moving, we're a large geographically diverse, you know, you, you shared all the different locations we have. We cover, you know, the entire Metro Atlanta region. We have multiple program lines. So we were operating, I would say, more like an ocean liner. And with this, we had to start operating like a speedboat. And so that crisis team that came together started as a crisis team, but it really became an innovation team. Because by the end of March, when I look at this slide, and it kind of gives me PTSD when I look at it, but it's also great. It proved to us how essential the why was and how needed we were. So we answered that second question. Well, first of all, well, I'll go with the second one first in terms of what did we do to meet the, the, the pandemic's needs or the community's needs. So we really honed in on two things. We said, well, we've been in the childcare business for really 40, 50 years. We know how to do childcare. So we worked with eight major hospital systems over the course of a few days to, to reach out and say, if we offered a childcare program at our branches for your workers that are on the front lines of COVID, was is that something that you need? And they all said yes. And we were able to get leadership from eight major hospitals on a call within a matter of days. And the individual who was leading this work for us within the Y, I remember saying to him after the call, you know, maybe we should tackle peace in the Middle East because getting, you know, leaders from these hospital systems on a call and having them all be very open with one another. I mean, you know how competitive the market is in that space. Um, you know, this was a big deal. And they all said, yes, we need this. We don't know how our employees are going to deal with childcare, how they're going to come in and be on the front lines. So we worked very closely with the department, with DECAL uh, at the state of Georgia to license portions of our YMCAs that were not already childcare areas. So within um, a week, we had opened up five Ys to be programming for essential child care. I mean, we were early on with the masks and all of the uh, PPE and, you know, the temperature checks. I mean, that was, we were doing it from day one. By the end of March, we had expanded to seven sites. And then at the same time, the second thing that we said we could do this was we looked at our footprint and we have an extensive physical footprint in terms of assets, buildings. And so, 
they were all closed except for what we were doing with the childcare and the essential workers. So we reached out to our friends at the Atlanta Community Food Bank and said, do you need help with distribution? And Kyle Wade said, oh my gosh, we absolutely do. We don't have reach into every area of Atlanta like you guys do. So we turned our entire physical footprint into a massive food distribution network. And that launched again within four or five days of it. We actually launched it the same day we closed all of our facilities. So uh, since March of 2020, when we opened it, we've served more than 600,000 meals at a YMCA in Atlanta, working with 65 different regional food-based, church-based, community-based partners. So again, business as usual, a week later, Everything shut down. We're standing up a massive food distribution network and we're opening essential childcare. So we really, you know, stepped into this space and, and quite frankly, um, people, you know, people were concerned, you know, how are we going to be able to do this? We're losing membership revenue. We're losing program revenue. How are we going to be able to, to stand these programs up and support them? And my feeling was we have to do the right thing. We are called by our mission, our values, and our vision. And our mission has not fundamentally changed in 163 years here in Atlanta. It's to build healthy mind, body, and spirit. Uh, our values are caring, honesty, respect, and responsibility. And our vision is to be the organization that champions communities where everyone belongs. And I had to look at that kind of trifecta of those things and say, what are we called to do during this time? And we kind of jumped off the cliff and said, if we do the right things, our partners and our donors will join us and they will see value in what we're trying to provide. And they will know that we're coming at this from a very pure community focused missional place. And that's exactly what happened. We took the leap and we were able to really receive significant financial uh, philanthropic support to do these programs and to address the deficits that came over the course of many months from the loss of membership and program fees. Now that is actually, I knew a little bit, very little of that. I knew that the Y had stepped up in a number of ways because you're here and if you're here, it's hard not to know that. But when you explained it the way you did, it's amazing to me how much you had to do, how quickly, and normally people in their new role get to build up to a crescendo. You stepped in, and I doubt if you will have a challenge quite like that uh, again. You got it uh, almost day one. So here is a question I thought of as you were talking. Has your program, overall program, changed or do you view it as going to change even after you're out of the pandemic? Are there some things that you've done that you say, you know what, this wasn't what we we're supposed to do. It was largely in reaction to the pandemic, but programmatically, we should institutionalize this inside of what the Y does. So before the pandemic started, this, and this kind of informs all of it, but before the pandemic started, when I stepped into the role, I was highly focused on really investing in the culture of the why, um, really investing in our people. We are a people-based um, organization. It starts and stops with our staff. And I want them to be the walking embodiment of our values. I want them to create experiences that are unique and special. And so I was doing a lot of work with our team around shifting the culture 
from being one that was more focused on operational, open and closing the doors, running the programs, that's table stakes, to one that was more focused on experience, hospitality, customer service. So I was already in this place, and then we jumped into the pandemic. I think one of the things that I recognized during the pandemic is I'm pretty comfortable living in messy spaces. And change is not necessarily something that scares me. I, I really embrace it if it's needed, right? I, I'm not someone who's going to disrupt a system just for the disruption. But I do believe that when you have a mission that has not changed in 163 years and these values, those are evergreen, right? I love that. I love that I can lean on them. But what's also in our DNA and should be in our DNA, we have to while leaning on our mission and values, we have to look at it through the lens of the current challenges and opportunities that our community faces now. If we were still doing the same things that we were doing in 1970, we would be completely irrelevant. So part of, I think we had become a little comfortable, to be honest with you. I think we had gotten really comfortable in our program lines and some of those uh, were on their kind of product life cycle and they were peaking and they needed to be reimagined. And I think there are, you know, I want to be very clear that, you know, when I say this, the impact of the pandemic has been obviously very devastating in terms of loss of life and loss of jobs and what it's done in the, just across the board. But if you're looking at it from a leadership perspective and you're looking at it from how did it inform and change your organization, there are silver linings. And one of the silver linings was, you know, a lot of people really resist change. And with this pandemic, we didn't have the luxury of resisting change. We had to jump in and say, if we're going to be, honestly, if the Y is going to be here in a year, if, our, if we're still going to be open, if we're going to have our, you know, our doors are going to be open, we're going to have to all lean in and say that we're willing to think differently. So absolutely. And, um, you know, we should have, we should be looking at our programs and matching them to community needs on an ongoing basis. If we're not doing that, we're not doing our job. So yes, I think how quickly we had to evolve really um, gave our team the confidence to know that we could do this and that we should continue to do this. And so it, it's been interesting. You know, I think people naturally kind of want to like go back to what what things were, that's not really what we need to be thinking about. We need to take the lessons learned. We need to look at our community needs and we need to say, okay, what's next while staying true to the ethos of the mission, vision, and values of the organization. So, so Lauren, if for just about every other industry, every business, technology and the use of technology has really been a very big part of how a lot of organizations have had to live through the pandemic and probably have now institutionalized technology in a different way. So I'm wondering whether, like all those other organizations, you had to find a new reliance on technology, and if so, how did that show up? So going back to that first question that we had to ask ourselves when everything was beginning to shut down of how would we create value for uh, our members and those that were a part of the community, I mean, the obvious quick answer was we have to create programming that they can access. And if they can't come into our facilities, how are we going to deliver that? 
So really overnight, we started creating online content or virtual content. Um, we were doing, you know, wellness instructors were doing classes from their homes. We were um, doing various uh, education programs for kids. And so I think within two or three days of shutting down, we launched something at the time that was called Healthy at Home. And since then, we've renamed it Healthy Together. It's a digital newsletter that we were sending every single day. Um, and every single day, we were providing, creating and providing new content around wellness and education, tips and resources for uh, you know, being at home with your kids, places that you could safely go out and be outdoors. I mean, anything that was of the moment. We had an entire team that just completely switched into curating um, content. And so that's not stopped. We're still doing all of that. In fact, we've really doubled down on it. We've kind of come together with 10 other wise around the country, and we're all creating content and sharing it with our members. And this has actually bubbled up uh, to YUSA, which is um, you know the organization that we all receive our charter from. And so they're now looking at how do they make a significant investment in this platform that we're calling Y360 so that Everyone around the country, if you're a member of the Y, you have access to robust online content as a value add. We'll also be, you know, because Atlanta is so, you know, extensive uh, and spread out, we know that it's going to be very challenging from the studies that we've done to get someone to join a Y, uh, a, a wellness facility. And, and I want to come back later to the idea that not all Ys, it's not one size fits all. But we know that if you do, if you live more than five miles, if you live or work more than five miles away from from a Y, you're probably not going to come in. It's just too much with the traffic. So we have a wide swath of Metro Atlantans who have never been a member of the Y or wouldn't consider it because of where they're living or where they're working and where our locations are. So we plan by uh, the end of this spring to, to launch a virtual only membership. And we're playing with kind of what that looks like and what you receive and the pricing around that. But, you know, the technology, there's been significant disruption, especially in the wellness space with the rise of boutique fitness, the rise of at-home fitness. These are all factors that we have to consider as we think about how we continue to extend our reach and our impact and how we continue to grow and be healthy as an organization. So, you know, that you really do. I heard you once say in an interview that people view the why through their personal experience with the why. And so um, that really does resonate. And I understand why the focus on meeting people where they are and responding directly to the community. Uh, you've also always struck me as a leader who understood the need to demonstrate return on investment or contributions. And, you know, in the private sector, we talk about return on investment, but you talk about return on impact. And explain to me, I mean, obviously, it could be just a clever phrasing, but I know with you, nothing is ever just for show or appearance. So what do you mean by return on impact? Well, I see myself more as a steward of this organization. Um, I don't think of myself in terms of, you know, sometimes the president and CEO. I see myself as someone who is in a long line of stewards of an organization that has been positively impacting this community for 160 plus years. And I take that obligation and that responsibility very, very seriously. 
Um, it's kind of a, you know, we're going to be stronger when I'm on the other side of this than when I started. That's the, that's the, you know, my positioning on this, but you know, we, if you look at how our annual revenue mix works, right, we have, you know, earned revenue through membership and program fees. I tell people that's what pays our staff, opens our doors, runs our programs, you know, turns the lights on. Um, it's critical. It's critical to our model. We receive federal and state funding for Head Start programs and for food grants and for um, you know various um, other work um, in terms of partnering around um, foster children and programming there. And I share that that's the those are the dollars that really allow us to support and lift up those in the community that are most vulnerable. And then really the rest of, of our funding comes from philanthropic sources and the investment that the corporate and foundation and individuals make to the why. And that really allows us to provide access through financial assistance to all people. We don't turn people away from a why for inability to pay. We work with them and try to find a way so that all people can be a part of our programs. Uh, it also allows us to invest in innovation and stand up new ideas and pilot those. Most of the kind of great breakthroughs that we've had in our programming have come from an investment from the philanthropic community to allow us to try something new. So whether the dollars coming in the door are from members or from uh, state or federal grants or from private philanthropy. I feel a tremendous responsibility, and maybe this is because of my background as a chief development officer, I feel a tremendous responsibility to constantly communicate around how those dollars are being put to work and how they're creating value and and are a positive a catalyst for positive change in our communities. So, you know, to me, I have a, a responsibility to demonstrate that the dollars coming in our door are creating real impact. And, and that's why, you know, we run the business, we run the why like a business. Um, you know, if you don't have margin, you can't support your mission. And so I really feel strongly about continuing to invest in both technology and in platforms that are going to drive better customer experience, that are going to drive uh, efficiency, because the, the better we do and the more efficient we are and the more resources we can and earn, then we can do more in the community. So I see it as kind of that flywheel effect. So I, I you know, the why is here to strengthen community. And at the end of the day, we have to be held accountable to do that. No, that's great. And, and I'm sure that as you look at the journey you've been on, and obviously as a young professional, and you are a young professional, um, you've had mentors, certainly. And, you know, we're at a time when there's a lot of discussion around social, racial, and economic awakenings or let's say a new awareness. I'm not sure why it's new, but it is a new awareness nonetheless. You've been celebrated as the first woman president of the Metropolitan Atlanta YMCA. And you know, I, I sort of have a mixed view as a black person around what being the first means um, instead of it going to someone's head about they're so special that they're the first. It really is an indictment on how bad the system is that it takes this long to actually put somebody, whether it's a woman or a black person or a brown person, into positions of leadership. But 
that's a conversation for another day, and I'll set that aside. But I'll say, you know, why don't you just, I know that's an intimidating label, be in the first and you have to make your mark. Share your thoughts, if you will, about the importance of mentorship and maybe a very different word, equity. Well, I, I think from some of the conversation we've had previously during this, during this um, meeting is, is I think you can see that I have a strong sense of diligence and responsibility to the organization. And so, you know, I feel I actually, you know, it's humbling, A, of course, to be the, the first woman president. But I think that's has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, this is the Young Men's Christian Association, right? Uh, we just rebranded, and, and let me be very clear, we haven't stepped away from our Judeo-Christian roots. That's really grounded in our mission and values and vision. But the why is meant to be inclusive and open to and serving all. And so when we rebranded nationally about 10 or 11 years ago, that was really the thought is, we wanna make sure that everyone knows that they're a part of this organization. The other thing is that I think in the past, I'd say 40 years, you know, really ever since Jane Fonda put on a leotard and, and started working out, um, you know, the why before that had been pretty darn balanced in that triangle of mind, body and spirit programming. But there was a very big shift to the wellness space when that exploded, because quite frankly, there was money in that, right? You can bring that in and that helps fund your mission. I think, you know, even leading up to the pandemic and then and in the pandemic and and, and the heightened awareness around racial injustice. There is a pendulum shift that's happening to come back to a more balanced approach of the why as it relates to mind, body, and spirit. And so I think that's the, the lens that I'm looking at. I think a lot of the leadership around the why nationally was, you know, white men. And that had been the trajectory. You came in, you ran a local Y, you moved up through operations, and you became the CEO. That was the model. You have a lot more people that are kind of parachuting in uh, later in their careers, coming in through finance or development or marketing, and they're bringing different ideas. So I look at my, you know, my colleagues, Loria. Yearden, uh, who is an African-American woman leading the Seattle YMCA who came in from the outside, or Glenn Gunderson up at Twin Cities in Minnesota coming in from the outside. There's a lot more of that happening. And I think it's really important because it's creating, we're, we're retaining the important history and ethos of the why, but there's space for new ideas. And so I think that's been a really healthy thing that's happened. And the pandemic has really allowed all of us to be much more vulnerable with one another around the movement, which is what we call the, the YMCA nationally. Um, and we're, we're sharing and we're talking and we're building and we're doing all these things. So it's really exciting. I think the Y has always been committed to equity. I'm not sure if we've called it out enough. Um, I will share with you, you know, I, I had a, a moment that was just very personal to me when I saw the video of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. So growing up in South Georgia and going to high school in Brunswick, Georgia, um, I, I know that area. I, I know what street he was running on. And there was this moment of this happened in my hometown and he was killed for jogging while black. He was murdered for jogging while black. And I think there was this fear, to be completely honest, in the nonprofit space. I've talked with other CEOs about it, right? Before 
George Floyd and before Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and everything that was happening in, in the spring and in the early summer that heightened all of, all of the conversation, I think CEOs at nonprofits were a little bit reticent to come out on issues because people are highly aware that your financial supporters can be all over the political map, all sorts of different kind of leanings. But when Ahmad was killed, something shifted for me. And it just was kind of a, you know what? No, we are going to make a stand and we are going to speak to this and we are going to call out that equity is a critical part of our work and it will be moving forward. And we had a town hall with all, we invited all of our employees and uh, the wonderful former board chair of RY, Joe Arnold, facilitated it for us. And it was raw. And, and we heard things and people said things that, you know, I don't think they knew they could say in the Y culture and, and workplace. <laughs> and we ended up following that up and doing a pretty far reaching survey into our employee base. We got 500 responses back asking, how can we do better? How can we be a catalyst for equity inside the Y in terms of career pathways, in terms of educating our own staff, but also how could we um, be a place of equity and inclusion and empowerment and how can we help drive the conversation in the community and so since that we actually just went through and i thought this was so cool we used our hr culture and diversity committee of our board and did a blind we had about 40 people apply for this new equity cohort that we've established and we did a blind um you know i guess uh, process of selecting them using our volunteers and it was it's incredible because through that blind process, we've ended up with an incredibly diverse uh, first equity cohort, both in terms of race, in terms of tenure, in terms of age, in terms of faith. And this group will really take all the all that we heard back in terms of how can we do better inside the Y and outside the Y, and they're going to hold us accountable. That equity cohort will help move that work forward. And, you know, so the other thing that we did, Egbert, was we had started a strategic planning process in the fall of 2019. Mm -hmm. And so we had done, and because our last strategic plan ended in December 2020. So we had worked and done all of the kind of like partner surveys and focus groups of members and early learning families and, you know, kind of all of that. We had also worked with the Atlanta Regional Commission to create a tool where they had plotted all of our locations and then they loaded in the United Way Child Wellbeing Index. They loaded in all sorts of, you know, employment trends. They said they had never done something quite this deep for, you know, a client before. Um, and basically, this tool allows us to go in and look at each of our locations and understand in a very, you know, local way what the differences are, what the challenges are, how we should be programming. So we had done all of this, you know, qualitative and quantitative data in the fall of 2019 through January and February, and we had presented it to uh, a subcommittee of our board of directors that was working with our leadership on the strategic plan. And they said, we love it. Now go write the plan, right? <laughs> so uh, then the pandemic hits like 10 days later. And we put the strategic plan on pause for March, April, May, and June, quite frankly, because we just had to do all those other things we talked about, right? Figure out how to stand up programs and respond. But I'm so glad that we did because we came back to the strategic plan and sat down with pen in hand in early July. And all that we had seen during the pandemic and all that we had learned as a part of 
um, the heightened awareness under around racial injustice and social justice became a part of the plan. So we the, the guiding question that had been a part of the the qualitative and quantitative data phase was what does building healthy mind, body, and spirit, our mission, look like in 2021 and beyond? That was what was going to keep us in the guardrails, yeah, right? Sure. We came back and we reframed the question and we said, what does building healthy mind, body, and spirit with equity at the heart of our work look like in 2021 and beyond? And the resulting strategic plan speaks to equity and specifically calls out exactly what we're going to do around our programming in mind, body, and spirit pillars. And it's really exciting and it's really important work and we're not there yet. It's going to take us a while. We're, we're, you know, like everybody, we're in different stages on our journey, but you know, my commitment is that this is work that is deeply embedded into our organization. You know, and to be quite frank, if, if you don't see equity as a critical part of the work that we do to champion communities where everyone belongs, mm-hmm. you really shouldn't be working at the Y, so, you know? <laughs> so, so, so Lauren, and I, I know I was thinking about how I would, what question I would ask to, to end it. And I thought I had a perfect one, but you know, this is the reflection question, right? Because what you just said, and given the journey you've been on for the last, let's say, year and a half, normally you, you ask somebody, all right, so you've spent, just fast forward, you've spent 10 more years or whatever window of time at the Y, and you're looking back at what you have done. And the question is, what will you see? I still want to ask that question, but you've already done so much. Obviously, um, it was thrust upon you, and you took you took the you leaned into it and and made a lot of change and did a lot of things. But where do you go from here? So, if you look out on the horizon, what would your legacy be, or what would you like your legacy to have been? And how would you personally know that you've sort of made your mark on the organization, on the community? What, how do you measure that? Because it's got to be hard to follow what you've done for the first year and a half. Well, I would say, um, you know, I went from having a pretty ambitious agenda around culture shift, right, which we all know takes three to five years. Right. And that got elevated and got, we fast-tracked it. We're still not where I want us to be from a culture perspective, but that got fast-tracked because of the pandemic. I believe that I would like to look back and know that I helped position the why for relevance and relevance in terms of how we're meeting community needs. Um, I would like to look back and know that we were more inclusive in our partnerships and how we thought about how we partnered. You know, the why has some really specific core competencies, but if we're really going to address building healthy mind, body, and spirit for those that we serve and for, and to strengthen community, thinking we can do that alone is, is a fool's errand. So I would like to look back and say, wow, the why is the best partner, the best nonprofit partner in Atlanta to, to work with others, to, to collectively reach these needs. I would like to, again, create a culture where people are um, focused on continual improvement and questioning 
if we are doing the right things and not to be afraid of um, being bold. You know, I mean, in short, I want the Y to be the most relevant community facing nonprofit in Atlanta. And I think we can do that. Um, but we can't do it alone. We need to invite other people and other organizations to be a part of that journey uh, for the betterment of the for, for all that we serve and for Atlanta. How will I know if we've been successful? I think we can tell a lot by the level of engagement of our team members and by those that we serve. And I think when every single member or team member, when the person who works a part-time shift as a lifeguard on a Sunday afternoon or an assistant teacher in an early learning classroom or someone who works Tuesday night at a membership desk, when they can all speak to how their role is critical to moving the organization closer to our mission, vision, and values, when they can articulate that and they can live it and they are the walking experience and embodiment of it, I'll feel like we've reached the culture shift that's needed for this organization to be positioned for the future and to be relevant. Fantastic. I mean, anybody in the people business could learn a hell of a lot from, from this conversation. I mean, it's, as you said, you know, the, the primary asset is the people um, that you have in the organization to help serve the people in the community. And um, if you're trying to change culture, the hardest thing to do is, is handle and process the issues that people bring to the table. So when you can get everyone moving in the same direction, that's a hell of a statement. And anybody in Atlantic has seen the why as it's navigated this divide. And so I just want to salute all of what you've done so far and what I know you'll continue to do. So Egbert, may I say one thing about you? Um, I want to share, I don't think I've ever told you this. Um, it's gosh, it's probably been six or seven years ago, maybe longer. Um, and somebody reached out to me and said, Egbert Perry wants to talk to you about raising money and around development. And I mean, I remember exactly where I was. I was like, Egbert Perry wants to talk to me. Are you kidding? Like, wow. I mean, I just have so much respect for you and all that you have accomplished and not just the, the success that you've had from a business perspective, but I've had the opportunity to listen to you speak about your background and your family and what drives you and you know, you're very, you know, always talking about equity and, and being a role model. And, um, I have always going back to your question or kind of comment about mentors. I think one of the things that I've always tried to do is whether someone was my mentor or not. I mean, I, I would lean in and try to just get as much learning and information. I'm highly coachable. Right. And so, you know, as much as when I called you back that day and we talked for probably 30 minutes about fundraising, mm -hmm. I was sharing, you know, whatever expertise I could offer, but my goodness, I was getting just as much, if not more from having the opportunity to speak to someone who was to me just this, you know, this amazing leader that has transformed Atlanta in so many ways. So, um, I've always been, um, a, a bit of a fangirl. So yeah, thank you very much for that. You, you talked about my introduction being generous. That was very generous. I appreciate that. <laughs> Lauren, 
Thank you. Um, I am sure the audience appreciated this conversation. I certainly did again. And, and so I look forward to seeing you around town and continuing to engage. Thank you, Egbert, for having me. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group. Thank you.